Well, good morning again. Well, good morning again. Isn't this the most glorious summer? Now listen, squeeze all the juice out of it every day because you know what? November, December, January, February, March, April, May, and even parts of June. So squeeze the juice out of it. Well, we're starting a new series called The Elephant Series. And you're probably wondering why we're calling that because have you ever been in a, in a room with a group of people and uh, there's something going on behind the scenes, not in the room, but in life, and nobody wants to talk about it. And we call it the elephant in the room. So this is that series that we're going to be talking about some things that not everybody wants to talk about. So how this is going to work is I'm going to begin this morning, then next week, uh, Pastor Derek, uh, he's going to talk about another one, and we'll surprise you with that, and then I'll come back and do another one, then Pastor Scott comes and does one, then Pastor Kevin, sorry, then me, then Pastor Kevin, and we'll make our way to uh, Labor Day. But so today, our Elephant Series, our topic this morning is creation and the environment. So I want you to stand, and uh, we're reading from Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 28, but not all 28 verses. We're only going to read about five verses. I'm reading the blue. That is blue, by the way. And uh, you're going to read the white, and this is what it says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Well, that's impressive. Well done. Let's pray together. Father, we pause now, again, to acknowledge that you're here. And we thank you for your generous, extravagant, bountiful gift that you have demonstrated in Jesus Christ. And for the work and the activity of the Holy Spirit. And we pray that that same Holy Spirit that takes everything that you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it possible and available and applicable in our lives that that same Holy Spirit would give a voice to speak, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, and hearts to understand, but particularly as we go out from this place into our homes, into our relationships, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, and places of education, and where we get our services, and where we recreate, and all those good things, that that same Holy Spirit would help us to live out tangibly physically and meaningfully what it means to be fully devoted followers of the living Lord Jesus Christ. And in his name, we ask these mercies. 
Amen. I want you to be seated. Thank you. Now, I want to begin with a criticism, not of you, but of a criticism that has been launched, waged against the church, against Christianity, against Christians. The criticism is made by non-Christians or anti-Christian people and groups that Christianity, that Christians are to blame partly or largely for the current state of problems in the environment. In other words, that Christianity is to be blamed for the destruction that is taking place and has taken place in the natural world in nature. Now, that's a lot to take in, isn't it? Agrarian agrarian writer Wendell Berry, in his essay, Christianity and the Survival of Creation, says this. The indictment of Christianity by anti-Christian conservationists is in many respects just. Listen to what he says. For instance, the complicity of Christian priests, preachers, and missionaries in the cultural destruction and the cultural exploit or the economic exploitation of the primary peoples of the Western Hemisphere as of traditional culture around the world is notorious. Throughout the 500 years since Columbus's first landfall in the Bahamas, the evangelist has walked beside the conqueror and the merchant, too often blandly assuming that their causes were the same. Christian organizations to this day remain largely indifferent to the rape and the plunder of the world and of its traditional cultures. Ouch. That is painful, but if you know anything of the history of colonialism and the Christian church, then we have to admit that what Barry says is somewhat true. But as to the criticism that Christianity and Christians is largely responsible or to blame for the destruction of nature, I want to address in three different but on, not unrelated ways. Anyone who thinks or believes or says that Christianity and Christians are responsible for what is taking place negatively in nature and in the natural world, obviously, number one, has never read the Bible or the Gospels. Number two, they do not understand the nature of creation itself. And number three, they ignore the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Christ. But I'll say this as well, so put your seatbelt on. Any Christ follower, any Christian who exploits, misuses, or abuses creation, nature, should also consider rereading the Bible and the Gospels, should reconsider the nature of creation, and should revisit the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. So let's begin. What does the Bible say? I think, first of all, that if we're going to talk about this subject of the environment, I think that we need to, first of all, think about language. 
Now we know that in our culture there are buzzwords and there are catchphrases that get thrown around and we really don't think about much about their meaning and one of those is this, the environment, the environment. The environment is our culture's word for nature, for the natural world, for the earth. Now, I want to lean on Barry again because he makes a good point. He says this, the idea that we live in something called the environment is preposterous. The word came into use because of the pretentiousness of learned experts who were embarrassed by the religious association of creation and who thought world was too mundane. And he goes on and says, but environment means that which surrounds or encircles us. The world that environs us, that is around us, is also in us. We are made from it or made of it. We eat, we drink, and breathe it. So for us as Christians... I think if we're going to talk about the environment, I think we need to use biblical language. And the biblical language for our natural world and for the earth and for nature is creation. Now, when we mention the word creation, it sort of brings up another controversial issue, and that is evolution. Now, this is not a sermon on creation versus evolution. We might deal with that some other time, but not today. And the truth is that there are different understandings, even among Christians, of how the world, the creation, was created. But I think as Christians, we can all agree on who created the universe and the world. The Creator. Now, back to our criticism that Christians and Christianity is partly to blame or partly responsible for the destruction of creation. Well, what does the Bible actually say about creation? Well, first of all, there is nowhere in the Bible where it gives anyone permission to exploit or misuse or abuse creation. Now that brings us to our text. We understand from the account of the creation story in the book of Genesis that it says at least two things about humanity, about people. First of all, it says that people, Adam and Eve, were created as the top or the crown of creation. And the second thing it says is that these people, Adam and Eve, were placed then in the center of creation. Genesis chapter 2 verse 28 says that the Lord God planted a garden in the east in Eden and there put the man whom he had formed in it. But our text tells us that people, Adam and Eve, were created as the crowning achievement of creation. And our text says 
And God said to them, said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and other over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, the two words, subdue and dominion, cause us some trouble. They create some trouble for us because those who lodge this criticism against Christianity and against Christians suggest that the words subdue and dominion mean to exploit or use or misuse nature, creation. Does that hold water? Well, to be totally honest, the word dominion can mean subjugation. It can mean rule. And it can even mean to tread down. It can mean that. But that's not the intent. The intent of the word subdue and dominion really is about stewardship. And stewardship means that we as human beings, beginning with our parents, Adam and Eve, down to us, to you and me, that we are responsible to care for creation. But stewardship also means something else. Stewardship means caring for something that belongs to somebody else. So I want you to think of your most prized possession. What is your most, don't tell me, what is your most prized possession, not person or people here, not your spouse or your children or your family, your most, most prized physical possession, item. What is it? Whatever it is, imagine that you're going to give that to me and you're going to say, now, what I want you to do is I want you to take care of this. And so I am going to take care of your most prized possession. I am going to stewardship it. That brings us to this. We understand from the Bible that we human beings, we do not own any part of creation, nature, or the natural world. We own nothing. Now, we might think we own it, and our name may be on the deed to some property. But that's only temporary. Because there are limitations. Eventually, you and I are going to die. There is a rabbinical saying that says this, that every man and every woman must carry two pieces of paper with them every day. Two pieces of paper every day. And every day they are to look at these two pieces of paper. And on the one piece of paper is written these words, for you... The universe was created. But on the other piece of paper is written, you are dust and ashes. Deuteronomy 10, 14 says, Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, and the earth with all that is in it. 
Of course, that statement is made in other places in the Bible, in Psalm 24 and what have you, and in the New Testament. There's a great line. I've been reading through the books of Chronicles. And there's a great line in Chronicles chapter 29, verse 14. I never ever saw it before. David is praying, King David is praying to the Lord, and he makes this, he makes this a statement. He says in 1 Chronicles 29, 14, he says, For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. So when we give to the Lord, we're not giving our stuff or our money or our resources. We're just giving back to God what already is God's. We own nothing. God owns everything, and he has given his prized possession to us so that we will stewardship it. But when we give something back to him, whether it's our time or energy or our treasures or our talents, whatever it is, we're just giving back what already belongs to him. That brings us to our second statement, that those who say, those who think, those who believe that the current state of the devastation in nature, that Christians are partly responsible for, really don't understand the true nature of creation. And the true nature of creation is the idea of the goodness of the natural world, of our physical world. Now, many of you know this, as I do, that in Genesis 4, 4, 10, 12, 25, 23, and 25, and in Genesis 1, 31, at the end of creation of every day and at the end of creation itself, we read these words. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. So the goodness of creation of the natural world is the true nature of creation. But there's also this. Revelation, the final book in the Bible, Revelation says this in the King James, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Now, Revelation 4.11 tells us why God created even the stuff that you and I don't like, don't appreciate, and don't approve of. He created it for his pleasure. All of creation is for God's pleasure. And as much as I hate to admit it, black flies and mosquitoes and mice and snakes and bats are not due to the fall of Adam and Eve or the work of Satan. God finds pleasure in things that I do not. So I have an obligation, as much as I hate to admit it, to preserve God's pleasure in all things. Which means 
that I, we, you and I, must not exploit, misuse, or abuse anything. But that brings us to our third statement. Our third response to the criticism that Christianity and Christians are responsible for the current state of affairs in the earth. And anybody who thinks that, and anybody who believes that, and anybody who says that ignores the incarnation of Jesus Christ. God's ultimate statement, follow me now, God's ultimate statement on the goodness of creation, on the goodness of the natural world, on nature, and God's goodness on the physical body is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. That God, in Jesus Christ, became a human being with a human body. And there are at least four things that the Bible tells us about the incarnation. First of all, that in Jesus Christ, God took on a human form as a baby. John tells us, And the Word became flesh, skin and bone, blood vessels, tendons, skeleton, and dwelt among us. Philippians says, Jesus taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. We also know this. Not only was Jesus born as a very dependent baby, like every other baby is born and every one of us were born, The Bible tells us that he functioned as a normal person. The Bible says in Acts chapter 10, verse 38, it says how God anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And he went about doing good and healing diseases and casting out demons. Here's the point. When Jesus came in human form, he set aside his godly attributes and everything that Jesus did, he did by the power of the Spirit. He never once accessed his divine power. Why? Because if Jesus Christ, who is to be like you and I, can access divine power and his divine attributes, then he's not like us. When he read people's thoughts, it was a work of the Spirit. When he healed people, it was a work of the Spirit. It was God anointing Jesus with the Holy Spirit. And then that brings us that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was a bodily, physical resurrection. And that is very, very important. The Bible goes through great lengths to remind us over and over again that when Jesus got up from the dead, he did it with a physical body. Acts, in chapter 1, verse 3 says, He presented himself alive, appearing to them, the disciples, during 40 days, and speaking about the kingdom of God. He once appeared to them and he was hungry or he said to them, do you have anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. There's nobody from the East Coast that couldn't appreciate that. The point is that he could eat. He had a physical body. Now, put your 
pull your socks up and put your seatbelt on. The Bible also tells us this, are you ready? That Jesus' human physical body is forever. That Jesus Christ at this moment sits at the right hand of God in physical form. John says this. John says that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see, we shall see him as he is. Good thing. Because otherwise we could never see God. Because Jesus Christ is the only person of the Trinity that has a physical body. God the Father and God the Holy Spirit are spirit. They're invisible. But Jesus Christ has a physical body. His physical body is forever. And then there's this. We, you and I, we have been wrongly taught that this life is not that important. And that this life is just a dress rehearsal for eternity. How many of us in the room have ever heard those words been said or preached that this life is just a dress rehearsal for eternity? Raise your hand. Let me tell you this. According to the scriptures, your life and my life right now matters. Your life and my life right now is important, and it is a dress rehearsal for nothing. And the incarnation of Jesus Christ proves this truth. But there's also this. You okay? We have picked up this unbiblical, unchristian idea that the physical body is bad. By the way, I've told you this before. This is where we get our poor understanding of sexuality. But we have been raised with this idea, which is unbiblical and unchristian, that our physical bodies are bad. Do you know where we get that from? We don't get it from the Bible, and we certainly don't get it from Christianity. We get it from the ancient Greeks, Plato and the gang, believed that the body was the prison of the soul. That the soul alone was good and the body was bad, as was all physical matter. Everything physical was bad and to be kept away from. And the soul, the goal was to release the soul, set the soul free from the body. Wendell Berry has a great line. He says this, he says, the Bible's aim is not the freeing of the spirit from the world. It's a handbook of their interaction. 
God did not make a body and put a soul into it. Like we put a letter in an envelope. You know what a letter in an envelope is still? God didn't make us, humanity, people, Adam and Eve, and then put a soul in it like we would put a letter in an envelope. No. Listen, read Genesis again. God made us from the dust, and then by breathing his breath into it, he made the dust live. And the dust formed as man and made to live did not take on a soul, but it became a living soul. The goodness of our physical bodies, the goodness of your body and of my body is based on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is based on the truth of Jesus' physical body, which is forever. God became human flesh in Jesus Christ. Are you ready? And just like Jesus' physical body, your body is forever. Your humanity, my humanity is forever. I know that disappoints some of you. But I got some good news, but I got some bad news. The good news is this, you are going to get an upgrade. to 2.0. A glorified body. But, 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 but. Pause. Your humanity and my humanity is forever. And there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, but I want to give you two. The first one is this. God, and you've heard this a humpteen dozen times, God only made one of Brittany. Now, her parents may think, thank God. But that's not what God says. God only made one of Brittany. There is no other Brittany. There is no one, there's no one else like Brittany Osborne. Nobody. And because she is unique and because God has made her with dignity and with such beauty, he says, Brittany Osborne, your, your humanity, it's forever. And when I get to heaven... Or you get to heaven, and I'm probably going to get there before you, because only the good die young. I'm sorry. <laughs> when I get to heaven, and you get to heaven, we're going to walk in, and I am going to recognize you, and you're going to recognize me, because your humanity and my humanity, it's forever. That's what God thinks of you and me. We are beautiful to him. We are his prized possession. So much so that he wants you to be you for all of eternity. And spouses, do not dig your partner in the ribs. That's not nice. I hope that gives you hope. But there's something else i got to tell you. Here's the bad news. There is a correlation between the treatment of your body and how we treat creation. So for example, if you treat your body well, you're going to treat creation well. 
If you think your body is bad, then you're going to think creation is bad. If you exploit, misuse, and abuse your physical body, it is likely that you're going to do the very same thing with creation. Because there is a correlation between how we treat and view our bodies and how we treat and view the larger creation. But let me end with a few thoughts. Between all creation and God, there is an absolute intimacy. Acts chapter 17 says, For in Him we live and move and have our being. For we are His offspring, His creation. The other thing is, the second thought is this, that all flesh... All living things, all organisms, lives by the Spirit and the breath of God. Now, Job, we could go to the New Testament. I really love Job's line here. Job says, if God should set his heart to it and gather to himself his spirit and breath, if God would pull back his spirit and breath, all flesh would perish together and man would return to the dust. Paul says that not only as Jesus Christ made creation, but that he is the sustainer of creation. Your very next breath, your now, this moment heartbeat is because of God's breath and spirit. And if he were to withdraw his spirit or breath, everything alive would be like a nuclear winter. Everything would die and go back to dust. And then the gospel tells us that God's love for the world includes every creature individually, not just races and species. This is Jesus' idea when he says, in Matthew, he says that not even a sparrow falls to the ground without the Father acknowledging it. And even the very hairs on our heads are numbered. Now that's going to be easier for some than others. But Pastor Kevin's not here and I can't take it any further. You know what that means? This is what this, that means. This is one of the most powerful statements I've ever read about creation. There is simply nothing in creation that does not matter. There is simply nothing in creation that does not matter. The statement in John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever should believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Here's what we know, is that the world was created by love. It was approved by love. It's good. It exists and it endures by love and it can only be redeemed by love. So what should we do? 
Here's what we should do. Number one is this. When we leave here today, let's go out and love our God like there's no tomorrow. Number two, let's go out and love our lives And number three, let's go out and love our world. Because Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world. Matter of fact, I read this morning from John chapter 12 where he said it earlier, and I never noticed it before, where he actually says in John 12, I did not come to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved by love. So anybody, anybody that thinks, believes, says that Christianity, the Bible, Christians are responsible for the destruction of creation, the environment, global warming, if you will, climate change, have never read the Bible or the Gospels. They do not understand the true nature of creation, and they ignore the incarnation of God in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? Stand with me, would you? Father, again, we have enjoyed your strength, your help to speak to listen. And now we ask that we would enjoy your enabling and quickening of the Holy Spirit to go out into our lives and to love our God, to love you like there is no tomorrow, that you would be our first love when we have a moment to think, you come to mind. And we will go out into our world and we would love our lives because we, our physical bodies are good and the world is good and creation is good. It's to be enjoyed. And that we would go out and love our world and we would be less filled with judgment and contempt and condemnation and that you would fill us with a love that can only come from you. We give you praise, we give you thanks, and we ask all of this in one name only, the name that is above every name, your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen?